Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I recently joined Bumble again. Oh, are you going to be able to date in person soon? Because, guys, everyone's getting the vax. We're getting back out on the streets, and it's a good thing. That's interesting that that's what you say about me going back on the dating apps, is that I'm going back on the streets. Um, oh, speaking of which, this has nothing to do, but I wanted to tell our dear readers. So I do a One Woman Sex in the City show, and one of the jokes I say in the show is that I'm a Carrie with the Miranda Rising. It's an easy joke. It's not like I, you know, it's, it's fine, but it gets a laugh every time. And I was on the social media, and I saw Allison Roman, who I follow, who I think she's, you know, I really like her cooking style, and I love her red nails. And no joke, she said word for word that she was a Carrie with the Miranda Rising. And when I looked at it, it was like 10,000 people had viewed it. And I felt so sad. Because now that's her joke. Because now it can no longer be my joke. That's not your joke But I've said it in interviews, you know. I've said it once, I'll say it before. It's been captured on film. It was really challenging. Carrie said it first. (laughs) Because I had this like existential thing where I was like, "Ah." she probably didn't steal it because she probably doesn't know who the fuck I am. You know, I think this happens probably more than you realize with jokes. Totally. And that's why you have to stop telling them. I was... Thank you so much. Have a great day. (laughs) (laughs) It was hard. It was hard. It was like, I don't know why it was so hard. I think it's because I haven't been able to perform live. And I felt proud of that joke. I went crazy a little bit. I had like like a malfunctioning glitch. It's okay. You know what? I'm over it, actually. Come up with an even better joke at her expense. What I wanted to say, <laughs> what was amazing, is I wanted to make sure that it was documented on this podcast that I came up with the joke first for our dear listeners. Well, what, what makes you think they'll believe you? That's a really good point. They know you can't lie because of the cue. They know I can't lie because of the cue. All right. That's that's fair. The cue test. It's so the IQ test. Other than test. dating. Other than dating? What, what else, else are is you... there? What else is even there? Oh, my God. What else is you know what there, I mean? girl? What are you excited about or not excited about now that we can go into the world in a different way? Here's what I'm excited about. I'm excited to feel less stressed. I'm excited I'm going to go home and see my mom for Mother's Day. And it's not like I haven't seen my parents mm-hmm. since this whole thing started, obviously, dear readers. But I'm excited to go with less stress of yeah. possibly giving it to them or possibly carrying it myself. Mm-hmm. My siblings will be fully vaxxed by the time I go home. What are you not excited about? Getting back to normal. Easy. That's so general. Is there something I'm, specific? Here's what I'm nervous about. I, like many New Yorkers, function as like a gig employee, a gig worker, right? I have a podcast. I work part-time customer service. I sometimes babysit. I sometimes cater. I sometimes go off and do solo shows. So Mm -hmm. it's like I, 
hobble together a bit of a life that requires me to kind of zip, zip, zip everywhere. I think you cobble it, probably. Yes. Don't you know hobble? Did it. I say hobble? I think you said hobble. A hobble a life together. I like I hobble a life. Hobble around, <laughs> lifen it up. I hobble around. No, but I am worried about hobbling around. I'm worried about going back with the same energy I was doing before. Because as you know, like, one, you gestated and had a baby throughout this year. But, like, before that, it's like we run around, we're going, we're running errands, we're going into the city. Like, it's yeah, just... Yeah, am I not excited about... I would say my excited about is getting out of people's business, which is to say being able to see somebody and not having to weirdly ask them about who they've seen over the course of the last week or what they've done and how reckless they may or may not have been. Like, I would love to go back to being like, it's actually 100% none of my business what you've been up to. I like that. Yeah. What I'm not excited about is the subway straight up because... I haven't been on one now. Do you for remember the last day you've over been a on year? One? I remember mine was March eleventh, twenty twenty. I can't even remember. I mine. remember because it was the it's day probably I got early back. March though. But yeah. did I ever tell you that one time I was on the subway listening to a podcast? It was probably I listened to a lot of um, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. It was probably Conan O'Brien needs a friend, and I was sitting on a train and there was maybe mm, four other people and one of them was um a tall guy standing and i do this thing where i I like passively look at everyone right not like i and especially when i'm listening to a podcast it like puts me in another world where sometimes your eyes just land somewhere totally anyway i was kind of like just listening to this and it podcast and it made me laugh at one point and I'm looking kind of all around and I'm not LOLing but I'm doing that thing where you're kind of like dumb smiling yeah so I have like kind of a goofy like chuckly kind of smile and my eyes pass over this guy and he's staring right at me when they pass over him mm-hmm. so I noticed that so maybe they stop for a minute and then I I do that thing you do when somebody's kind of really giving you a hard stare where you look away very quickly. Right. Um, But I'm still listening to this funny moment in the podcast, so I'm, again, not laughing, but laugh-ish. Yeah. And he starts to get closer and closer to me, this guy. He gets closer and closer until he's standing right in front of me, directly over me, and it's an almost empty subway car. And his legs are almost touching mine. He's so close to me. No. And he starts just letting spit fall out of his mouth onto me. And like, no, I pause the podcast so that I can hear what's happening because I can tell he's talking to me, but I don't look up at him really. And I just freeze and I'm like gauging what to do. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Who's fucking laughing now? You know, you know, laugh at me, you know, fucking laugh at me. Who's laughing now? Yeah, you scared now. You're scared now, aren't you? You don't fucking laugh at me. Oh, and I was Quinn. like, totally just not looking at him. But it was so weird, first of all, that he would think I was laughing at him. He wasn't doing anything funny. Second of all, it totally reminded me of that classic phrase of like, 
what is it like men worst fear is that women will laugh at them women's worst fear is that men will kill them it was totally that encapsulated in a moment but I specifically think of that moment a lot and I'm like I don't want to get back on the subway (laughs) like at all how long ago did this happen uh I was this year easily um I'm so sorry that happened to you oh total buzzkill it was also just annoying that no one else on the subway either they were all pretending not to notice or they did notice but they were doing that thing of like that's a crazy person I don't want to get involved and for the record I'm pretty good at sensing crazy this guy was not crazy he was not crazy he was really purposeful in what he was doing and he was a man that was looking for a fight and like I was the closest thing he was going to get to that that moment Mm. um but it was so i don't know a lot of stuff like that has happened to me that makes me so on the train specifically like i've definitely had a lot of crazy shit happen to me on the subway i had a girl one time huffing across from me that that collapsed onto the floor um and we had to like pull the you need help thing um, I had a, a crazy drunk woman try to, like, grab my stroller from me when Koa was in it. I've had, like, really bad subway luck, I'll say. I think what's so sad about that and scary, too, because there's been such a prolonged time of us not going on the subway, it's like, when you have to use it, you kind of are forced to, like, expose yourself to the thing that was scary, like, the last time you went on, right? And so you go in and you, like, have to confront your fears because you have to get from point A to point B. And I think what's challenging about this year, not having to use it at all, it, like, almost, that gap of time almost increases the, like, anxiety of going back to it Mm -hmm. in a way. And if that happened to you just, like, last year... That's, like, the most recent subway memory you have. Yeah, I definitely got off and was like, I should buy a car. <laughs> like, totally. Uh, I can't imagine just the difference of, like, controlling your own environment. But ironically enough, uh, again, don't know how to use that word, so probably wrong about that. <laughs> but I don't drive in New York because I am so scared to drive in New York, not just because of the roads, but because of the energy. It is and an aggressive energy. But it's the same energy I'm scared of on the subway. And the subway, there's no barriers. Like, at least when you're in your car, the worst that can happen is someone yells at you. But then you can drive away from them. Totally. Um, Or roll up your window. There's, like, some barrier. In New York, it's like someone is mad at you, and they are right next to you and can touch you. Oh, Quinn, I hate that story. Like, I really fucking hate hate that story. Yeah, I, I mean, I just got off at the next stop and got on a different train. Uh, car. Were you but shaking was, at all? Yeah, I was shaking, and I was really scared that he was going to follow me onto the next uh, right. car, but he didn't. Uh, but I was, like, kind of hiding when I got on the next car, because I was like, ooh, if he sees that I'm still on this train, okay. is he going to do something? Right. Man, it just really sucks to be a woman sometimes. It Not really that if I does. was a man, that would have been so, all like, that better. The fucking fragile ass ego of that guy, like you, like. Well, I was like, sir, I have my earbuds in. Like, you really can't imagine that that Conan O'Brien is who I am laughing at, and not you. And it, I also went against my own advice because you know my whole thing when I get a uh, cat called is, is I to like engage, really engage, overly engage. I think it's um, good not to engage this person. Well, I. 
I wonder what, I still wonder what would happen if I had like taken out my headphones and like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Let him say it again. And then be like, oh, I'm listening to a comedy podcast. It's Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Have you ever heard it? It's really, really good. He interviews, get like really gone into detail. How did you I get just... out of, you know, you did the right thing. By not someone, engaging? Yes, you did the absolute right thing. Yeah, I wonder. How did you get out of it? Because if he was over you, did you, like, scoot over and get up? Yep. I hate that. I'm so sorry. I, like, it's so, it's so frustrating that you can't just function in the world. Well, it's and, like, frustrating that the whole thing is, like, I'm going to exert my power over you and completely shut you down and take you out of this private moment, which is you listening to this funny podcast and laughing, I'm going to put you in a position where I control you. Now you're afraid instead of smiling. I'm telling you that's what I'm doing. I'm telling you I'm happy I'm doing it. It's working and you have nothing you can do to control your own situation. You're just completely overpowered by me. Like it's a real mind fuck in a way. Did I tell you, I mean, it's not the same at all, but I... I had I was doing laundry on International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to me. <laughs> and, you know, really going to stereotype. And I was, like, holding my laundry bag with, like, I had, like, the cart, the granny cart, as we call it, and, like, all my laundry was in it. And I was going to the laundromat. And this guy behind me just, like, stopped. And I had my headphones in. And I know it's dangerous to have your headphones in, but sometimes it's really nice to shut out the energy around you like mm-hmm. you just don't want it and he just like I don't think I've I couldn't understand exactly what he was saying but he was talking about my butt and he was Maybe he was wishing your do, butt a happy international he was women's definitely day. wishing my butt a happy international women's day in his own unique way which was asking it to bend over giving it instructions because every woman on international women's day loves a list of instructions for her butt to do mm-hmm and I remember, like, I was, so I, I walked out after past the bike lane and was just sitting in the cross section, you know, waiting just mm-hmm. to get away from, but yeah. he was on the corner. He wasn't moving. He just kept, like, usually they catcall and walk away. And I was not engaging this guy. And he was just sitting there asking me to bend over, like, talking about my butt. And it got to the point where I turned to him and I said, I said, listen, I got to tell you, I really don't like that. Can you please stop? Like, I asked like that, and he walked away. But I remember being like, I really don't like that. It makes me really uncomfortable. Can you please stop? And he walked away. But there was something, maybe Happy International Women's Day. I think it's like, I really felt in that moment, not like I want, I always imagined being like, would you say that to your mother? Or you do like these jeans? That was where, you know, we talk, we joke about doing that. But in that moment... I felt really uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and I told him that. So you're just like, please. I just said, please. Please like, don't. I really don't like that. It makes me feel unsafe. What's weird is it reminds me of the post I put up that was something I saw circulating online about uh, on our. I put it on our Instagram. It was how uh, how to avoid rape. Did you see that? Yeah. The tips for how to avoid and rape. And it was to a man of being But like... it was like, if you think you're going to rape someone, ask a friend to accompany you. <laughs> yeah. um, here's a rape whistle. If you think you're about to rape someone, 
blow, blow the it. whistle. <laughs> it was just like, because that's the whole thing. You and I can sit here and go back and forth a million times what about you can and should what do. we should do in these situations. And it sucks that we have to devote any time to it because the truth is, why don't I actually just devote that time to trying to, I don't know, raise two boys that aren't going to make anyone have to have that conversation by right. not making them feel unsafe. Do you want to know what my goal is when I go? I don't, I've done a couple stand-up, but a couple stand-up times, but I have a new joke that I want to try out on our, on our listeners. What if what's her name steals it? She's probably already said it. <laughs> She's already said it, but here's what I want. I think, no, it requires me to be in, in a stand-up, but I want to go, Hey, and usually at these open mics, it's like mostly men and three women. So I'm going to say, oh my gosh, hey, there's three women here. Did you know that one in three women? Like, okay, raise your hand if you've been sexually assaulted. Chances are all of the women will raise their hand. Be like, wild. Do you know one in three women? Okay, now all the men, how many of you have sexually assaulted someone? (laughs) Just sit there. And wait until they raise their hand. And like, obviously, that can't be right. That can't be right. Okay, so three, but none here. Okay, fine. So, so one in three women. Let's just say one in three men. Okay, so think of your three best friend. Okay, which call out? Which one is a sexual assault guy? Oh, you're calling out, <laughs> <laughs> and just stay there the whole three minutes that you have an open mic, and just try to see who's gonna be the sexual assaulter. This sounds like a really fun open mic night. I would like to go. Do you want to go and see me do it? Yes. I'd be really scared, but I think it might be really fun. And I'm going to be the girl in the audience going, it's that guy. He looks like he would do, <laughs> do a sexual assault. But it's so funny. We talk oftentimes about, you know, women being survivors of sexual assault, you know, and we don't talk about the men that do it enough. Right. We're like, we do in this podcast, certainly. But it's like there, it's not happening in a vacuum. Like um, Jamila Jamil wrote about it um or said something where a man a man wrote something and i remember her commenting being like i'm so fucking annoyed a man wrote it but he's right where it's like the violence against women it's like all women are the center of that story of like survivors of sexual assault survivors of all these things and it's violence against women but what we're not talking about is violence perpetrated by men it's like we have this world where women are the center of the story when it shouldn't fucking be that way. It mm-hmm. should be that dudes are the fucking center of the story who are who are doing this, who are the active participants yeah. in this, who are pers- who are participating in that action where where women and that go of course as a generalization, I'm not saying men aren't um, victims of sexual assault by no way, but in terms of the broad case of it, they're violence perpetrated by men towards women, yet women are the active focus mm-hmm. as opposed to what we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is it's fucking men. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, I think that's a pretty good segue into my story. Have and you're you listening to Truly. Darkly. Creepily. <laughs> Starring the incomparable, the beautiful, the incredible, the amazing Quinlan Posner. And co-starring her assistant, <laughs> Carrie Ipema. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I didn't ask you. I just you just showed up. showed up. And then yeah. I tried to make room. What did you say? Dress for the job you want. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. Thank you. Um, this is a story brought to you by The Atavist Magazine. Um, there was a really great article in there called The Kalinka Affair by Joshua Hammer. Ranker had an article by Stephanie Hammond, and The Guardian had a really, really incredible in-depth 
article by Andrew Anthony. This is the story of Kalinka Bambersky. She... Great name. Yes. So let's start with her father, Andre. He studied maths, as they say. And maths? qualified to be an accountant. Oh. So a few years after qualifying, he moves to Morocco with uh, his partner or wife, uh, Danielle, and they have two kids, Kalinka, who they name after a wildflower, and her younger brother, Nicholas. And they... Uh, we hate to be Nicholas in that situation. Nicholas, yeah, it's not as good. No. They live in Casablanca, which oh. we all know Casablanca. Except I have Carrie. seen that movie. I have seen that movie. Oh, really? Thank you. Okay. They live in the same town as this guy named Dieter Crombach. He the names in this story are already incredible. Really good. Do you like how I'm just going for it? And confidently? I, you're doing it right. Well, I'm doing it. Uh, <laughs> he, so Dieter works at the German consulate as a doctor, and he's at the time married to what is his second wife. His first wife actually died really young at 24. Andre doesn't know Dieter at, at this time, but they kind of see each other around because they live in the same town. What he definitely doesn't know is that Dieter... And his wife, Danielle, are having an affair. And mm. uh, then he finds out eventually. Well, what happens is uh, in 1974, Danielle and Andre move to a town called, I'm going to say, Petchbusk. Sure. Let's try that. It's close to Toulouse, which I have been to. And uh, Dieter actually gets a place in Toulouse nearby so that this affair can continue. Oh, he's hooked. Um, yeah, I he's don't know if it's to Danielle. get jiggy with it or if there was like a, a point other than that. But anyway, their, their relationship does get serious enough that Danielle leaves Andre for Dieter, leaves her kids with their dad and is like, I'm going to go be with Dieter. Right. I'm going to go be his third wife because Dieter Dieter Pumpkin Eater had a wife and couldn't keep her. Uh, I just thought of that just then. That was really good. It yeah, took me a just minute came to right go, into my... what's the name that it was? It was Cheater. That's yeah, really fun. Quinn, um, you should have a podcast. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Um, I'll consider it. Seems like a lot of work, though, for no pay. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so for the next five years, Andre lives in Pat. Peckbusk. All right. So in 1980, he's like, I want to go back to Morocco. And because he's going to move again, Danielle lodges this complaint because her kids are going to be further from her. The result of this complaint is she ends up getting custody of the kids. So they go to live with her for two years. But they do miss their dad and their home a lot. Considering so, their mom left them, yeah. it feels a little unfair for the kids. I don't know their feelings toward her, to be honest. I think they're probably complicated. Certainly. It's complicated. In summer of 82, it's decided they're going to go back to their dad. So they just have the rest of the summer with their mom and their, I guess, stepdad, Dieter. And then they're going to go back to live with their dad, Andre. But Kalinka will not make it back to her father alive. Andre, no. at this time, he's 44 years old. He's now a successful accountant. He started a new relationship. I think the woman's name is also Danielle. So he's hooked to the Danielles, which is my middle name. Danielle, and you're next, baby. I wish. July 10th of 1982, he's at home, and he gets a call from first wife Danielle, ex-wife Danielle, and he is totally shocked and gutted to learn that his 14-year-old daughter is dead. That day, Kalinka had gone... Huh? July, you Mm -hmm. said? 
that day, Kalinka, she's like super athletic and she'd gone windsurfing and then got home at five and she's kind of tired and has dinner. Um, but her stepfather, Dieter, calls a Dr. Jobst the next morning and he says, at 7.30 last night, I injected Kalinka with a this compound. It was to help her tan more easily. Don't inject kids with things to help them tan, please. Don't do what? that. He said then she went to bed, but he saw her light around midnight. So he came in and gave her a sleeping pill because he's like, you what? you know, you need help going to bed. Um, and then in the morning, sometime before 10, he calls this doctor to bring him over and says, well, I went, I got dressed to go on a, a horsey ride and I went in to wake her up because she wasn't awake yet and realized she's dead. He killed um, her. And her body had already started to stiffen even. So she'd been dead. But I still, I tried to revive her. I gave her an injection into her heart to, it's like a, gave her one of those like Pulp Fiction deals. It didn't work. Then I tried two other stimulants on her and her legs, but it was too late. She was dead. So. What the actual f- Other than essentially this call with the doctor and another call with the commissioner uh, of the Lindau police over the phone, he's not really formally interviewed. Dieter isn't. He's a really well-connected doctor, and they don't really talk to him about it. So during the call that he has with the police, already details are starting to shift where the shot he gave her was now not about tanning. It was about treating her anemia. And everyone's like, you know, I think let's say Kalinkna died from uh, heart failure. Maybe it was had to do with having some sunstroke from windsurfing that day. She's 14 years old. This seems strange to me. The autopsy, which is they do it a couple days later, they can't establish the cause of death. But the report notes that uh, there was fresh blood around her vagina, which had been torn, and a white substance inside her. There were some injection marks, arms, leg, thorax. There was undigested food in her stomach. You should know the substance they found inside her vagina. Semen. Not tested. Dr. Hammond, who made the report, was like, these injections don't make a ton of sense as a means of reviving her, as the story kind of states, right? But he doesn't conduct any toxicology tests to see what's inside her. Um, he does estimate, though, that her time of death was between maybe 3 and 4 a.m., which would have been seven or eight hours after she'd eaten, which doesn't explain the undigested food that they talk about in the report. So this guy's report is, oh, I'm going to go ahead and call it garbage. This 14-year-old girl is getting no one looking out for her. Well, and Andre's like, can I see the report? Can I see the report? Can I see the report? And everyone's like, no, no, no. And finally, he fucking gets his hands on this autopsy report three months after she's dead. And he looks at the report and he's looking at this Dr. Hammond's garbage report and he realizes there's a few people in the room while this report's being made. While this autopsy is happening, there's a few people in the room. There's the police superintendent, the local prosecutor, and... Dieter. Dieter. What the fuck's Dieter doing in the room? And Andre goes nuts. So, fuck. The autopsy report at this time is also given over to this professor at the Munich Forensic Institute. And he's like... 
uh, this was an iron and cobalt injection that he supposedly gave her, whether it was for tanning or anemia. I'll leave up to you, dear readers. Um, but it had to have been done way later than he's claiming because it had to have happened pretty much right before she died because it's a real dangerous drug. It can cause an adverse reaction, but it would happen immediately after being injected, not a bunch of hours later. Right. That would explain why food's still in her stomach, right? Yeah. So what's not seeming like it happened is the whole story about her being awake and there being a light on and a bunch of stuff happening later. What it seems like took place is that he injected her right after her dinner and it caused a circulatory failure. So she would have been vomiting and unconscious and then eventually dying then. So Andre's... What is Danielle, the mother, doing at this moment? She's just accepting it for what it... Defending her husband. Dieter. Defending Dieter. In 1983, Andre does what any reasonable father that's grieving would do. He goes to Lindau, the town nearby, and he distributes some homemade flyers to Dieter's neighbors that say, just so you know, this guy raped and killed my daughter. Think you should know. He only gets away with doing this for like a couple hours and then he gets arrested. Um, and then Dieter sues him for defamation and actually receives a judgment of 500,000 marks. Andre's like, yeah, listen, you raped and killed my kid. So uh, I don't give a fuck what right. any court tells me to do. I'm not giving you jack shit, you right. fucking twat. And instead, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out a phone book and I'll just start mailing this flyer to your neighbors you fuck yes meanwhile he's like we gotta exhume the body like yeah. now that I finally saw this autopsy report I think we gotta exhume the body they don't do it for a 14 year old to die they don't do a toxicology report wild so three years after she dies it's now 1985 and the authorities are like okay okay we'll examine her uh, the first thing they notice and are pretty shocked by is that she's missing her genitals they were removed during the autopsy what they're never recovered so now no one can prove that she was assaulted andre is like what in the actual fuck i want authorities to look into this i want doctors to look into this and meanwhile danielle is like leave dieter alone you're just mad that i picked him it's like no honey bitch please it's not about you it's about your fucking daughter so andre hires this top german lawyer uh rolf bossy to try and take dieter to trial and um there's a new physical evaluation by french doctors and they're like yeah it definitely seems like these injections happened right before death not a bunch of hours before so that does bring into question the story that this guy dieter's giving us but the request to reopen the case is denied, they say, on grounds of insufficient evidence, probably because her fucking genitals are missing. In 1995, Dieter does get tried in France, but he's absent from the trial. It's in absentia. Yeah. He gets a sentence of 15 years in prison for intentionally afflicting of bodily harm, which caused unintentional death. Okay. The verdict is annulled in 2001 by the European Court of Human Rights because Dieter wasn't there to defend himself. 
How? They even, when they annul it, this will kill you. They give him a compensation. They give him like 100,000 no. francs or something. In 2004, France is like, we want to extradite Dieter and bring him here. And Germany's like, no, 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 no. The case is closed. So Germany keeps protecting Dieter and France keeps being like, we think he should go to trial. While this is all going, we start to learn more and more about this Dr. Dieter and his past. Remember Dieter's first wife that died? Yeah. She was 24 when it happened. And her family thinks Dieter is the dude to blame. He had apparently, like, abused her, threatened her, and then she dies of an unknown illness in 1969. It's insane. She first becomes mute and blind. Then she becomes completely paralyzed. So she's in the hospital, very sick with mystery illness. Dieter gets between the doctors and her and injects her and is like, don't worry, you guys, it's snake venom. She needs this. And then she dies. <laughs> Why in the world nothing happened because of this? What? I could not the figure out for the life fuck? of me. Also, who shows up at a hospital and is like, I've just got to inject this snake venom? Isn't snake venom just also, like... you're not allowed to, like, treat your family members. There's, like, so many... Maybe that's just in the U.S. Snake venom? It's... What oh century God, was this? this? Guy. It's not Outlander. Like, what are you doing? Get out of here. There's a waiting room for people like you. There's a jail cell for people like him. (laughs) February 1997, a 16-year-old girl, Laura. So this is after. This is 15 years later from him killing. Okay. Yeah. It's a bunch of years after Klinka's death. A 16-year-old girl named Laura goes to get an endoscopic exam from Dr. Dieter. And he tells her, oh, you know, I'm alone here. My assistant's at lunch. But, uh, yeah, let's, uh, you know, let's do this. Here's the thing. It's going to be real painful. So, uh, here, let me just inject you with something. Does not ask for any consent and injects her. And she's out cold. She wakes up. She's naked and he's on top of her. She tries to move. But whatever he injected her with, she's, like, paralyzed. Oh, my God. So she can't move for a while. Then when she can finally move, he's like, let me give you a ride home balls on this guy drives her home i don't know if he thought she'd be too scared or too confused but she does tell her parents what happened and a reporter ends up calling andre and being like guess what Dieter's in jail and andre's like oh finally justice for my daughter oh no actually he just raped a girl at his clinic oh my god Six months later, a German judge convicts Dieter for raping a minor and orders him to surrender his medical license. He's sentenced to two years in prison. Not enough. Doy. But then, citing his lack of a criminal record in Germany and his prestige in the community... He gets his medical license back? They just set him free. They're like, yeah, two years seems real strict. Just, you know what, just go. This poor 16-year-old, oh my God. Ugh. But the good thing is... Because these are not two isolated fucking incidents. No, 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 Do you know no, what no, I mean? No, like, no, there's no, no, no. no never fucking is, Never is, never is. When people get away with shit, they do it again and again and again. But at least now Andre's not the only guy that's, like, pissed. Um, there's protesters gathering outside the courthouse. There's six other women that come forward to say he did stuff to them. He, Dieter... Remarks or, you know, he's basically like, I don't care. And uh, he victim blames, essentially. 
the other cases are not You shouldn't pursued. have let me shoot you up with a mystery drug. You don't think he even let me one. I don't think people are letting him do that. I think he's just doing it. You jump in, in, into hospital rooms exactly. with a snake on like, him. <laughs> this guy's just got... Somebody needs to take his syringe packet away. So in 2006, there's a German TV documentary that is made about... It's called Kalinka's Last Journey. And it has an interview in it with two teenagers who say they met Dieter. He injected them with iron cobalt and raped them. One of them was 14. Dieter doesn't care. All the while that this shit's happening, no consequences. So he's running around riding horses, riding sailboats, lifestyles of the rich and famous, oh, being a spoiled asshole. so sick. He also has a bunch of mistresses. Obviously, that's his MO. So he and Danielle do end up getting divorced because of that. Um, and she returns. She goes to live in Toulouse, but she's still all the while in denial. I think because she would be somewhat to blame in that, you know, for not seeing the warning signs of being married to this monster. Monster. So Dieter gets married to his fourth wife, Elke Frolic, who is a decade younger than him, but so have all his previous spouses. And then she divorces him because he keeps cheating. So... Then you've got Andre, and he's making it his life's fucking mission. He's like, we're going to get this motherfucker. But also, he kind of is working against a deadline because there's like a statute of limitations, essentially, that's going to be up in 2012. The uh, doctor's in Bavaria at this time, so Andre's taking trips there to like check on him, and he'll just spend weeks just pursuing him, and he makes a website that is all about the case and he sends a bunch of letters to everybody senators everywhere in france and judges in early 2006 a woman that's in germany goes for a routine examination and they're like sorry your doctor's gone he hung himself (laughs) which is a really weird side note that doesn't have much to do with the story but that sounds like a really intense visit to the doctor's office certainly sorry your doctor has hung himself instead why don't you see this guy and the guy that goes to treat her is Dieter and she's like this guy seems weird so she looks him up when she gets home finds the documentary that I told you about about him and is like this guy was like raping kids all over the place and I think he got his license taken so she calls the cops and is like do you know this guy's like working for like as a doctor right now she also finds andre's website when she's doing her googling and tells him what's up andre's like well let me tell you this is what i know and this is what i know about him and i've been following him and i know where he lives and here's where he lives so he essentially helps her to then tell the cops this guy's posing as a doctor and here's where he lives and they find him and they arrest him it turns out that, yes, he lost his license, but he's never had any real consequences other than that. So he's just been secretly acting as a substitute physician at all different clinics, like 28 different clinics in the past five years. Oh, my God. Nobody had bothered to check his background. He just gives, like, a different name, and it's not an issue. Oh, my God. So there's going to be a trial for fraud now, and he has to submit to a psychiatric exam. And the people that that examine him are like, this guy's a chronic liar, a sexual predator, and a narcissist with delusions of grandeur. He just thinks he's completely outside the law. And during the evaluation, he's like telling them, he's like, yeah, you know, I, I have sex with a lot of ladies. Actually, you know, recently I 
I drugged the 16-year-old niece of my cleaning lady and had sex with her. He's not totally says that sure why really. Why it's like the Bill that. Cosby where it's like, no, 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 we're not going to believe Marco until he fucking admits it himself. He's like, well, I, I did do that. Um, oh, my God. So they diagnose him as a compulsive. I diagnose him as a fucking asshole. There. After a two-day trial, he's found guilty, sentenced to two years. It's That's garbage. It? Two years and four That's months. Two years it? and four months, to be fair. Oh, my God. So you can imagine Andre's not like, well, that's taken care of. No. Not only that, he doesn't even serve the two years. He serves like 18 months yeah. and then goes home. And Andre's like, well, I'm not fucking letting this guy out of my sight. So 16 months after Dieter's out, he starts fucking working as a substitute physician again. <gasps> Andre's oh, like, Oh, my God. And Andre starts hearing kind of rumors or buzzing that maybe Dieter's going to leave the country. He's going to maybe go to West Africa. Oh, my God. And he's going to get away with everything. If he gets there, it's done. So this is a a quote from Andre. I knew that the French government would do nothing. I knew that the German government would do nothing. I decided that I had to do something. To kill him was not the solution. To kill him is not justice. I am too correct. I have always been too correct with everybody, with every institution. And nobody did anything for 27 years. It was too much to bear. So. Oh, my God. Andre ends up admitting later that he hands over a bunch of money, 20,000 euro or something, to two different people who offered to kidnap Dieter. Uh, Both of them just steal his money, by the way. Nothing happens. But then this guy, Anton Krasnicki, Krasnicki, Anton Krasnicki, asks to meet with Andre. And he's like, listen, I don't want money. I'm basically... A vigilante. Yeah. I'm into... I think he phrases it differently. But like he might say, like, humanitarian interests. But essentially, yes. And he's like, if you just cover my costs which will be like 30,000, I will force uh, Dieter into France where they wanted to extradite him. Like, you're not getting Germany to cooperate. I will get him into France. And, of course, Andre's like, sold. let's do this. Anton and a couple of his cohorts go find Dieter. They punch him in the face like you would. They tie him up, they gag him, they throw him in the back of the car. They cross the border into France with Dieter, like, on the floor of their car. And they stop in the town of Molhus, and the police then get a call. First, it's, um, I think, a German woman that calls them, maybe one of the accomplices. And she says, like, this is where you can find this guy, Dieter, Mm -hmm. that's wanted. And then Andre calls them, and he says, this is what he says on the phone. I am Bambersky. I had a daughter, Kalinka, who was raped and murdered by Krombach. And there is an international warrant out for his arrest. Please go find him on Rue de Toulou. So 20 minutes later, it's like four in the morning. A cop calls Andre back and he says, we found him and he's in bad shape. Um, I read a kind of conflicting account that. Andre had called in using a fake Russian accent. But then in this other interview, he says, no, I just called them. And I was like, I am Bambersky. Like, go get him. Get him. Um, I feel like that's right. He says he's too correct. 
that's an instance of like I feel like that's a lost in translation moment but yes um, or maybe the woman used a fake accent eh, just had to say because I'm not sure but I do know what happens next which is that the police find Dieter he's in a courtyard uh, and he's on the ground tied up he's gagged he's bleeding he has a fractured skull and they take out his gag and the first thing this motherfucker says is Bambersky is behind it it's like well yeah you raped and killed his kid. Yeah. What'd you expect? He's like, you've got to let me go. I'm a doctor. And according to me, I'm having a heart attack. And they're like, uh, nah. you're wanted. We're not going to let you go. You're super under arrest. Meanwhile, this guy, Anton, that did all the work, he's not that good at his job. Because he somehow, when he went to Dieter's house... He left behind a piece of paper that says, like, his name, his address, and his phone number. He, like, left behind his business card. Like, we'll kidnap for money. I don't know. He, like, left behind. He gets arrested right away. And shortly after him... I they, think it's more time than than Dieter. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, totally. The, the justice system. But uh, they link him to Andre right away. They arrest Andre as well. Um and Andre's so, like, I don't give a shit as long as... Well, Andre, he gets released the next day on bail. Dieter's in prison, and he's going to have a trial. So the trial's in 2011, and there's another woman that comes forward. And back. she's like, I had an affair with this guy when I was 16 years old. In fact, he was married to that woman, Danielle, at the time. So we know that he likes young girls. Right. I mean, we already knew that. But what she says is, yeah, he would just drug her when he wanted to have sex with me. A bunch of other women testify that he'd sexually abused them as teenagers and that he always used these cobalt iron injections, the same that was used on Kalinka. Danielle finally testifies against Dieter and says, I guess what I think happened is he drugged me that night. Wow. And then he killed my kid. On October 22, oh 2011, God. Dieter is sentenced to 15 years in prison. Not enough. Not enough. For causing intentional bodily harm resulting in unintentional death. Uh, it's confirmed on appeal. And then they're like, let's appeal it again. Rejected in 2014. Then he appeals to the European Court of Human Rights and says, "I was. this isn't fair. I was prosecuted twice for the same crime. And they're like, mm, no. And they reject that in Good. 2018. Andre's trial is after Dieter's. He faces up to 15 years in prison for kidnapping. God damn it. And at the time, you know what he says? If I should have to go to prison, I will go to prison. Most important is that Kronbach is judged even if he is found not guilty. Right. So his trial for the kidnapping... How can a judge not be lenient with his sentencing, though? Like, how can a judge not... Yeah. So his his trial is May 2014, and he confesses that he agreed to having uh, Dieter Kronbach abducted. He's given a one-year suspended jail sentence. What does suspended mean? Um, suspended is like he doesn't have to go to jail right away. It's like you don't have to – it's not like you leave the courtroom in cuffs. I think it's like right. at some it's point like you, you get to go serve that time. Right. Get your affairs in order. It's a little more chill. Yeah. Because he's not a risk. He's not going to do this again. No. Uh, and you know what? I think as far as the sentence, like, he could just care less. What matters to him is that he found his justice for his yeah. daughter. And that uh, 
the guy this had to face some man had to yeah, yeah had to answer for also these the crimes. amount of women he's probably helping by putting this guy in jail for 15 years hundreds of women i'm sure have yeah been spared. thank you thank you for your Certainly. work yeah and um that is an instance of vigilante justice that I tell you what I am a hundred percent on board with. I hate and nothing that story, would have happened though. to that motherfucker if that guy That's hadn't. not enough. That's not enough. Like I want him gone. I want him. I want him castrated. I, I can't believe I want that Andre this... awarded like a medal of honor totally. for doing the work that no one else that no one else could. Yeah. I just this guy, ugh, who kept doing it. I'm like, and then. The fact that all the six circumstances were fishy, and then he was in the autopsy, like forget Jesus it. He Germany? was one of those. Yeah, he he strikes me as like a master manipulator. Yeah, and like um a Jeffrey Epstein, like just connected to everyone. Everyone Ugh. owes him a favor vibe. Ugh. So these doctors and judges are all, you know, probably having a lattes with him. Uh, it's just disgusting. I hate that. I hate it. Um, I guess it's my turn. It is. It has to be. I know, but that process story of elimination. Took it out of me. The good I news did is, one. is my story is not. There, it's there's, not the same there's one. There's no bad guy in my story. Okay. Which I think is good. We need a minute from a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing the story of baby Jessica. <gasps> Wonderful. Right. Wonderful. Because I'd heard about her, but she. I mean, I was. This all happened in before I was born, and I remember my mom telling... Anyway, um, so I got this information from Wikipedia, Time, Biography, People, Day, History, Mamma Mia, ABC 13. So just Mamma Mia the Musical, right? Mamma Mia the Musical that mm-hmm. Larry Posner walked out of. Um, Jessica- Mamma Mia, here we go again. Bye-bye, <laughs> Larry, we missed you. Um, <laughs> so Jessica McClure is her name. She's born March 26th. 1986, and her parents were teenagers at the time. Sounds like they got pregnant. They got married. Um, Midland, Texas, where she's born and from. (sighs) Oh, I'm sorry. Are you boring you? Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) No question. Um, Midland, Texas, where they're from, is this big oil town. Um, So lots of oil rigs, lots of people who know how to drill. There was a recent oil bust, so I guess the town was pretty depressed. It wasn't doing well, low-income area. October 14th, 1987, Jessica's 18 months old. Her parents are 18 years old. She goes to daycare at her aunt's house. Her aunt runs a daycare center, and her mom goes and helps her sister run it. And so Jessica is with four other little kids in the backyard, and they're playing, and her mom is there watching these five kids, one of her own, and the phone rings. Mom goes out, answers the phone for a couple minutes, and it's the 80s, so I think you can leave your kid alone in the backyard for a minute. I'm just like, instead of mom shaming, she's 18, she takes the phone call. She's, a couple minutes later, she hears screams. She runs out of the house. Four of the kids are there, her daughter is missing. No one is in the vicinity. Where is her daughter? She has no clue. She goes and checks on them and it's like, where's my kid? She finds an eight inch abandoned water well pipe. It is 22 feet deep. It is a water well. That's so small. Eight inches. Think about that. 
she realizes Jessica fell down 22 feet down this pipe. How did she even fit? That's insane. That's insane. She, the pipe, what's crazy is this, well, it wasn't uncovered. It had a big rock on it that somehow was moved. They don't know how it was moved. Did all these kids, like, work together 18 months? I mean, she's bare, like, she's walking, but, like, I can't imagine this child being very strong. No, she's weedle. She's so weedle, weedle enough to fit down an eight-inch pipe. So mom freaks out. That hurts my heart to think of what was going through that mama's head. Well, I can't imagine going out and having five kids there and you come back and your kid is missing and, like, no one took the baby. Like, where could she have gone? Mm -hmm. So immediately she calls the police. The police get there in three minutes. She's like, it was the longest three minutes of my entire fucking life. The police come, they see it. They're like, how do we know if the baby's okay? It's a 22-foot drop. And also, they don't know. Like, it's an abandoned water well. It's super deep, right? And it has a bend. What they figure out now is it has a bend. And she's caught where the pipe is bent. Bent. So the firemen come. They drop a microphone down there so they can hear. And she starts speaking. She starts talking. Mm-hmm. She's crying. She's moaning, but she's speaking. They figure out that she landed with her leg above her forehead. Ooh. She like landed, and her head was against the pipe casing, and her foot was above her forehead. And she landed right where the pipe was. So she flew down twenty-two feet. So the question is, how do they rescue her? Eight inches, 22 feet down. They don't know how to get her. They can't, like, take the pipe out because there's rock and granite surrounding this water well. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, they also didn't want her to fall further down. They, like, didn't know how far exactly. Like, they, you know, they had, like, whatever. They figured out exactly where she was, but they had to be really careful about taking her out. They couldn't just, like, fish her out because she was stuck. This was, CNN at this time was the only 24-hour cable news, and it was a new entity at this time. Mm -hmm. So my mom talks about how this was, like, the first sensationalized story on 24-hour cable news. CNN. everybody's watching. The whole world is watching. There is... It, it's all in this woman's backyard. So media's coming. Everything's, you know, like the media descends on it. And it was a year after the Challenger explosion. So like the news, like 24-hour news cycle is very new. So a lot of people think this story is the birth of the 24-hour news cycle. Mm. So media descends on it. The world is watching. People are going crazy. The president, President Reagan is commenting on it. He says everybody in America became godmothers and godfathers of Jessica while this was going on. Mm. She was called everybody's baby. People were sending in donations. They were sending in toys. They were sending in flowers. They were just sending her. Like, people didn't know what to do. Everyone felt so helpless. So helpless. And this 18-month-old, like... It's so crazy because we're like, for how advanced we are, everyone's like, can't we solve this we know what's happened yeah exactly she's right there get her get her but she's so like she's a baby she's like i'm just like tiny so 
like I said, it was an oil, and they were pumping oxygen into the well so that she could breathe. And the whole time while this rescue effort was happening, they were talking to her. They were getting her to sing. Um, a detective on the case was, like, talking to her, and he talks about how he could monitor her moods. Like, he knew when she was going to cry or when she was angry. And, like, when things got loud, they could tell she had, like, a little huffy voice that she would do so they knew she was angry. And he said he'll never forget her singing Winnie the Pooh by herself in this well. So like I said, it was a oil town. So they had a lot of experience in drilling holes. So they had a lot of people around. So their idea was to drill down in a parallel area, was to drill down a um, 30 inches wide hole using a rat hole rig, which is what they used to hang telephone poles so they would drill down using this and then they would go across to get her so they went down 30 inches wide 29 feet deep and then when they so they went lower than where she was so they could like meet up basically and then they had to drill between the two parallel holes Mm -hmm. but when they started using the jackhammer they realized like it doesn't funnel horizontally because it uses gravity as a jackhammer and also they encountered encountered rock and granite and they couldn't get through this mining engineer shows up and says there's this new technique called water jet cutting which was new but they were like we'll take anything yeah so they water jet cut the rock to to free it from the debris um and now it was like who was going to go in and rescue her Mm -hmm. Right. Because I think what they were doing is they were going to go like two feet below and drill and then like pull her down and out because they couldn't drill where she's at. Right. Right. Too dangerous. Too dangerous. So there was this guy, Ron Short, who was a roofing contractor who was born without collarbones. So he volunteered because he can fit. fit into tiny spaces. Um but eventually they decided it was paramedic Robert O'Donnell who was going to be the one to go down. And they were going to do something similar to what we talked about, the Thai cave situation, where it was like he was going to go in the tunnel, free Jessica, bring her back, bring her to another paramedic. That paramedic was going to go up, and then it was going to be passed again to bring her to an ambulance. So all this process of drilling, and everybody who was there was volunteer, was mm-hmm. a volunteer people. And there's news stories of it, and it's like a crowded, like all these people just wanted to be there to help in any way that they could. She was down in that well for 58 hours. <gasps> oh, my God. 58 hours this child was there who didn't eat, who didn't drink any water. And they said she was talking 80% of the time. They couldn't get her water? I don't think they knew how yeah, to. how would you? I don't, maybe they did, maybe they tried just to. like you could pour water down there. I just don't know if you could. I feel like that would waterboard the 18-month-old. Yep, totally, old. totally. It's like maybe could they put it's it. It's good I wasn't there. Or like could I they have, have like only fashioned like a something to go down to like, like a aim, long like a long draw, like a put like a sippy cup upside down and then like put it down and see if she can like grab oh, it. But yeah. I think, but the thing is, is um, you can't see me, dear readers, but like her head was against a casing. Yeah, she couldn't look up. So probably. she couldn't look up. So there was no way to right. get water to her and right. her foot was above her head. Right. So on October 16th, 1987, after 58 hours down there, she emerges and I watched the footage of her emerging 
and I got really emotional watching it because like people were there as soon as she came out it was like applause relief and you saw her oh my god I'm getting emotional she was completely bandaged and she was covered in dirt but she had like a big cut on her forehead her leg that I think was up is like out to the side and like the applause and and you see her take her little hand and rub her eye her eyes were open she was awake she was conscious they had her to like a little they had her strapped to a board Mm -hmm. and the guy who brought her up was brought up by a or tether rope and she was like on him while he was brought up and then they took her right to the hospital I think her mom looked at her and then she went to the hospital right away she was in the hospital for a month Um, she had gangrene on her toe because of the lack of circulation Mm -hmm. that it was up there and she had to have her one foot fully reconstructed so one toe was amputated um she was in the hospital for a month to recover because she had no food or water for those two days. Um, she was visited by Vice President George H.W. Bush at the time and got a call from President Reagan. Like, this is how insane it was. It was like Everybody truly was, yeah. a media, and it was a helpless child. It was like there's something about it, Symbol too. Symbol of innocence like, that's... Yes, and it's apolitical. It's like a human story where it's just like this freak thing happened of baby Jessica in the we- in the well... It was a huge story. Her parents were interviewed by Regis and Kathy Lee. The photograph that was taken of her coming out of the, from the rescue, from the well, um, won the 1988 Pulitzer for photography. Um, in 1989, there was a movie, movie called Everybody's Baby, um, the, rescue, the Rescue of Jessica McClure. Her parents did divorce in 1990. They were 18 when this happened. So, like, the media attention had to be fucking yeah insane and and i think too what's interesting is in this case there's because it's the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle we're already see, we're also seeing what it's like to be famous and not the next day in a really unique way where like the world is watching and now it's like everything stripped away which caused some pretty traumatic things which is like the rescuers of uh, uh, of baby Jessica, there were big fights over the Hollywood movie deal that would potentially come. Sadly, the paramedic who went and got her, Robert O'Donnell, he suffered from PTSD ever since he came back from rescuing baby Jessica. And he was seen as a hero, and then it completely went away. Um, and he ended up killing himself in 1995. And his brother was quoted as saying, ever since that Jessica deal, his life fell apart. Apparently four days before his death, it was the bomb explosion in Oklahoma. And he turned to someone, it might have been his brother, it could have been his mother, I don't remember who, but here's what he was quoted as saying. He said, when those rescuers are through, they're going to need lots of help. I don't mean for a couple days or weeks, but for years. Which I thought was just something that is not often discussed is this like the the stress of being a rescuer and that trauma I, yeah because it's so interesting i feel like because it was a successful rescue and because he was regarded as a hero right. the public is probably like first of all that went great and Second also the of real all, victim is hero. baby jessica right it's like right but and it's like what would you ever be traumatized by you did it and it's this this thing where i could totally see where any psychological attention towards the people involved would go uh, 
unrecognized or undemanded simply because you would think that it's a because it's it a, a victory yeah. yeah and no one died or you know i mean everybody was seemed physically okay but maybe not emotionally and mm-hmm. psychologists believe that he just had he had really bad ptsd mm-hmm. from the incident um so i'm going to get back to jessica yeah jessica had a total of 15 surgeries and what's pretty wild is she has no firsthand memory of this incident, of mm-hmm. what happened. She has no recollection. In fact, at five years old, she was watching an episode of Rescue 911 with her stepmother, because mm-hmm. her parents divorced and her, they both remarried, so she's with her stepmom. And they're watching Rescue 911, and they were watching the episode of Baby Jessica. <gasps> and she, she said she was moved to tears, and she looked at her stepmom, and she was like, who is that? And it was like, that was you. Whoa, I don't think they should have watched that. Here's when I read that. Thank you. <laughs> when I read that, because I just was going to say, like, oh, when I read that, minute. I was like, if I was her mother, I'd be like, why the fuck is the stepmother, why is this woman telling my daughter her about story. her story without her mother and father present? Like, that also, feels like no screen time. No, <laughs> five years old. I mean, girl, I'd let her do whatever the fuck she wants. You know, I, she probably did get to do whatever she wanted. Well, all these that donations, might have screwed her up, honestly. But it didn't because all these no? donations. She didn't know this happened to her. Somebody she talked about oh, being someone teased kept when she everything. was in school. Well, all of her the donations that she got, which were like hundreds of thousands of donations yeah. of dollars, they went into a trust fund that she wouldn't get until she was twenty five. Thirty five. Come on. But also so smart. So smart, but so 35 smart. is smarter. But growing up, she was, some kid like told her that she if lived I in... I got it when I was 25, do you know how much cocaine I would have bought? <laughs> <laughs> we would not be here. Um, but like... We'd be here, but I'd be talking so fast, you wouldn't be able to understand me. <laughs> I love that. But I also love that she wasn't a child. Like, she grew up... A very ordinary life, which is what I think is the good thing. She grew up, like, totally normal. She does say she remembers kids being like, you lived in a well. Or, like, they talk about how she has a lot of money because of all these donations, but she obviously didn't have any. Right. Um, She, I'm really, the stepmom thing of her watching the TV show with her stepmom feels super suspect. And I would be really pissed if that's how my kid found out about this. There are some existing physical wounds that are still on her body. She has a scar on her forehead, and then one foot is smaller than the other because of the gangrene and then the reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also has rheumatoid arthritis, which she manages. So she ended up graduating high school in 2004. In 2006, she got married. She has two kids. In 2011, she's, she was young. She's middle of our ages. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you graduate high school? Oh, one. Seven. Oh, that was some great math I did off the cuff. Middle of us. Correct. That was exactly correct. I think that was just ball- ballpark in it, but it, you're accurate. That was the other thing, though, too, is my mom remembers this case so much because she was my brother's age. Oh. And so my mom had a kid at the same Ooh. age. And would, you can look at them happening. and go, that's how old that baby is. I yeah. get that. Yeah. Um, so in 2011... Um, she turned 25. She got the trust fund, and she was saying she was going to put it towards her kid's college and to buy a house. Um, and so she bought a home less than two miles away from where she fell down the well. So she's still in Midland, Texas. But in 2008, the crash, they lost all the money. 
she said people still call her baby Jessica. Like, when they see her scar, there's, like, certain identifiers that they know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty interesting, obviously, because she looks so much different as a baby than a full-blown adult. And <laughs> It would be so weird if she looked the same. <laughs> if she looked the same. And weirdly, she grew up, but she still has the exact same baby head on her body. <laughs> it's wild. Um, and arthritis. And also, this, well, but it's crazy. There's, like, pictures of her with, like, the president. Like, what a wild whirlwind that was. And... So, but my favorite was her quote, when people call her baby Jessica in the store, like as an adult, like baby Jessica. And she goes, like they told Lil Bow Wow, you'll never get rid of the little part, she said, because you'll always be what you are remembered as. So I like that she compares herself to Lil Bow Wow. The well was obviously closed. And on top of it, there's a marker that says for Jessica, 10, 16, 87, which is when she was rescued with love from all of us is what it says and it still attracts tourists um let me really quick look this up yeah because i do want to say it because i think yeah quinn uh, dear readers quinn has heard something um about the baby jessica case that she's going to contribute that i did not stumble upon in my research so uh, all i really know about it um and i don't remember why I know it probably some other podcast knowing me but I do know that another person that was associated with the rescue was this policeman Andy Glasscock Um, and I know that he was sort of looked at as one of the heroes of this story Mm -hmm. but then he's in prison now for drugging and raping a woman and doing something to a kid, sexually exploiting somehow a child. So. Wow. But he had a big role in the rescue of baby Jessica. That takes such a dark turn, doesn't it? Yeah, it didn't happen till after the rescue, but total buzzkill. Well, bad people do good things and good people do bad things. People are. Totally. People are complicated, I guess. It's, I mean, that's not that well said, but... Um, <laughs> I think you can put that on a t-shirt. People are complicated. People are complicated, And that's right? the first time you've ever okay. heard that in us. In our... Yeah, newsflash. Well, dear readers, here's some suggestions for you. Save a baby from a well. Join Patreon. Don't do drugs. Seek vigilante justice when necessary. Spend your on... money wisely and not in one place. Rate and review us on Apple. Set up a trust fund, but only have it be accessible at the age of 35 for your child, (laughs) not 25. For all of our dear readers who can set up a trust fund, you especially, feel free to donate to Patreon. (laughs) Yeah, what are you doing? (laughs) 